Ordering new, it's gonna be two octopus and a one halibut. Two octopus, one halibut. Ready? Let's talk. This is Mise en Place with Chef Robert Belcham. Hello, everybody. There were a lot of things I was anticipating doing this month of July 2020. Can't say that I've done many of them. For example, I was planning to get my shit together and prep for conversations we were going to have at Cook's Camp this September. Well, I have a bit more time to tackle that now. Most of these conversations revolved around a core theme, which, just like this podcast, is focused on a progressive, sustainable future for professional cooks. Recently, I had the great pleasure of talking to someone who's been a big influence on my career and for a great many of my colleagues. Michael Ruhlman is a James Beard award-winning author of many fixtures of the cook's bookshelf, from the French Laundry Cookbook to Charcuterie and Ratio to the influential Making of a Chef. We talked about the way things were, how they are, and where they might end up for this increasingly challenging profession. That's coming up, well, right now. Stay tuned. Before I forget, a reminder that Mise en Place is produced by the Chef's Table Society of British Columbia, with generous support of Rationale Canada and our media partner, Scout Magazine. Speaking of media, while you're listening to this, you may want to point your browser over to ruleman.com, R-U-H-L-M-A-N, to see what my featured guest is up to during his quarantine in Providence, Rhode Island. He's whipping up some classic cocktails with recipes included and hosting his own podcast titled From Scratch, like his most recent book. It's also worth clicking on the My Books menu, just to be reminded of how many great and truly career-changing books have Michael Ruhlman's name on them. When we connected a few weeks back, we started with a status check. Lots of people I know think our industry has been changed irrevocably by this pandemic. I asked Michael for his current perspective on our future. Well, there's two ways it could go. Um, I believe that if we found a vaccine within a year that was effective, safe, and uh, widely used, then we could go back to normal, pretty much across the board. If there is no vaccine found, and who knows, um, then I think, yes, anything indoors where people are grouped together is going to be fundamentally changed, meaning restaurants, primarily restaurants and entertainment, theater, movies, things like that. So yes, um, I'm not hopeful for the restaurant business until we find a vaccine. Um, that said, I think you've got to adapt and transform. You know, I was talking with Nick Conis uh, of Alinea and he said he believes that high-end takeout is here to stay. People found that they could do it and liked high-end takeout and, um, so that's one interesting thing that's going to change. But, you know, again, as far as dining inside, it's fundamentally changed and will and will remain so until and will remain so until a vaccine is found. Yeah, that's how we feel about it up here as well. Um, the the idea that uh, the older demographic for sure will not dine out again until there's a vaccine. That's how I feel as well. Um, I've read and still regularly use many of your excellent books, you know, from, you know, all the charcuterie books. Ratio is one that I, you know, I use like still on almost a weekly basis. Uh, at this stage, any thoughts on how unnecessary changes to kitchens and food service will impact our craft of cooking? I know you spent a lot of time in kitchens for years, um, you know, researching and all that sort of stuff. You've seen a lot, a lot more than a regular media person or a food writer would have seen. Within the within the within the professional food service world, right? Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of kitchens. Um, that's true. 
and because I, I don't stay for years, I've probably seen more kitchens than a lot of chefs, um, though not in depth. You know, the fundamentals of, uh, of cooking never change. So, no, I don't see it changing in a, in a, in a big way. It, it, will all, it, it will rely on the nature of how you're selling that food. You know, that, that's what's going to change. Maybe, you know, it's, we're going to get better at, at, at serving food that you have to carry out and, and that has to be reheated. You know, I had a, when I was in New York City not too long ago, I, I ordered a burger from the Beatrice Inn. And I had a pickup time. It was waiting for me, so it had been done. I brought it, you know, it took me five or ten minutes, walk back home, set up dinner, you know, open a bottle of wine, etc. And when I finally got to the burger, it was still hot and it was perfectly cooked. So it was undercooked when it left the restaurant. Same with the steak. The steak was absolutely spot on um, temperature-wise. So I think they're, you know, they're getting good at, they, they cook that steak differently from how they would have cooked it serving it right away to a diner. So that, that, you know, those little changes I could see happening. We're getting better at, um, prepared food, better at making travel food, travel food of course, yeah. and figuring out ways to make money cooking and selling food. Yeah. Do you think that that's going to change uh, fundamentally for the front of the house as well? I'm, I'm, I don't know how much time you spent. I mean, you obviously dined all over the world and, and you've been in many great restaurants, how do you feel it's going to change for that aspect of it, the the hospitality aspect of of dining out? Interesting. Well, I you know I don't know how much dining out people are going to be doing. Certainly, in places where you there's not outdoor dining, um, so it we stand to lose a lot in terms of just know how and uh, the ability to to know great service, to be gracious, to be welcoming, to be inquisitive of your patrons. You know, young folks learn this by, by watching older, more experienced people do it. And if no one's doing it, then when it does come back, and I'm hoping that it does, um, we, we may have less sort of collective knowledge on how great service really works. That's just a guess. And that's only if it went away for a long time. The PPE that the servers wear, does that make you feel more safe or less safe or less hospitable? I, I've been to a few restaurants here in Vancouver and they wear PPE, like masks and face shields and things. And you, you lose that human touch uh, between the, the, the customer and, the, and the, the server, you know, and that hospitality a little bit. And I was wondering how you felt about that. Because I haven't dined, I, I, I haven't really been, um, I, I don't know, but I've, I've watched service and it looks odd, you know, not, not having that smile. Um, yeah. And... <clears throat> It is what it, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable either for them or for me if they weren't wearing um, a face mask. Um, so, you know, it's necessary. Maybe maybe this is one way that, that table service will change or service will change. We'll get better at showing um, uh, uh, our emotions in ways that don't, require, that don't require seeing a mouth. But I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it, actually. It'd be interesting to see how that could play out. Uh, it's been over 20 well, years since, since you went through the uh, this, the culinary program at the CIA, and you wrote you know your your great book, Making of a Chef. Uh, is that approach and style of culinary education still relevant today, and 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 why? Well, that's a you know <laughs> that's a huge question. Um, now it depends on the future of restaurants. Who's going to spend this kind of money for an education for an industry that is so uncertain right now? 
That said, I know the CIA, I was talking to Chef Pardis, who was um, so fundamental to that book. I, was, I had actually had lunch with him um, in his backyard this w- past weekend, and he said they are planning to go back to school on August 10th, and he's not happy about it. Um, so we'll see how that works. They're just putting, they're just keeping people sort of physically separate. Um, yeah. But that's it. So people are still going to get an education for now, but the future of culinary education will depend on the future of restaurants, of course. No, I mean, that's that's the, the million-dollar question, I guess. You've seen the amount of technology that's gone into a lot of kitchens, especially in you see it in Asia with robotic cooks and kitchens and things like that. Do you think that that's something that's here to stay or to get bigger? Um, I think there will be continuous evolution. Um, throughout robotics, I don't know robots making our food. I don't know. I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen YouTube stuff on that, and um, uh, it's interesting. I I just know that we will continue to innovate, um, and you know, the basics don't really change. Um, the fun, t- fundamental techniques and uh, basic tools, hot surfaces, sharp knives, surface to cut on, that will always dominate. You know, and when we've seen fatty stuff come th- through, fatty. You know, the Ferrana Adria modernist cooking techniques, a lot of them uh, have sort of made their way into contemporary repertoire. Uh, but most of the stuff is, has fallen away. I mean, the ISI gun, which Ferran decided to put something other than cream in, um, it's in every single high-end restaurant. He, tra- he, he saved that, that product's business. And the other stuff goes away. I mean, how many people are using, you know, spherification techniques anymore? Yeah, the the valuable ones will 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 remain, and and what's not valuable over time will fade away, like our president says this virus will. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, you talk about the, the 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 fundamentals of cooking don't really change, and that's hundred you know one hundred and ten percent true. What do you think the the cooks coming through culinary school or younger cooks today? What do you think that they need in their toolkit, uh, for lack of a better definition? or skill set uh, to sort of navigate what's what's happening today and what's been happening in the last couple of years? Um, you know, they'll, they'll need what they've always needed. I think what's, what, what, what's clear is that those people who, um, one, have a great foundation of culinary knowledge, um, who read a lot, who think, are, are, are motivated and, and are self-motivated, will succeed more than those who require someone else to kick their ass. Um, I think you need to be a self-starter. You need to be, um, you, you have to recognize, these young cooks have to recognize that they alone are in charge of their own destiny. And in this uncertain world, that destiny is going to be, belong to those who can adapt, uh, persevere, and overcome all these new obstacles. So you've got to be smart. You've got to have a good education. You've got to work your ass off, and you've got to be really flexible. You sounded like Thomas there for a second. That's exactly it's what every great chef would say to a young cook, for sure. In one of your recent uh, uh, From Scratch podcasts, uh, noted chef and author Dan Barber of Blue Hill had some interesting things to say about the cook's craft. Based on his recent experience, he, he called it being a food processor both making boxes of meal components for his customers and processing products from his network of local farms using fermentation and charcuterie and other preservation methods. He said the crisis has made him look at that, at that critical need for more capacity and skills in the local food processing. And I certainly second it. 
Um, but how can we get aspiring cooks to consider that as a valuable career path? What kind of new business model could could support something like that? Well, certainly charcuterie shops and um, and, and anything that that preserves food. We we need that more and more. Dan was forced to do this. I mean, he got a, they were trying to figure trying to figure out what to do with 100 pounds of monkfish before it went bad. People don't usually try and preserve monkfish the way they do cod, but who knows uh, if that would work? I don't know. That's an innovation forced on him um, by his circumstances. Right. So it's it's all very interesting. I think that you know there will always be a need to preserve food and a desire for preserved food because it tastes good, because it's nutritious. And when you have chefs making really good charcuterie, really good salumi, really good pickles or fermented foods. So there's all kinds of opportunities for um, so-called the new uh, a new age of food processing. Um, it, it used to be a bad thing. Now it's apparently um, a good thing by necessity when chefs do it properly. Well, I think it's always been a thing. It's something that our grandparents did and, and uh, all of our ancestors had to do just to be able to survive it's only been in the last hundred years or so that, that it hasn't been a sort of a thing that happened on a on a yearly basis, right? Uh, that's true. It's since refrigeration, you know, and we almost lost yeah. it because of because of uh, you know, because in America or the Americas, we we almost lost the tradition of of uh, curing and preserving food because the freezer and refrigerator did it for us. We didn't need to go through the work. But we've realized that we're, we, we lost something there. We lost these extraordinary flavors and, 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 and foods um, for the sake of convenience. And I think we're realizing that that's not, not a good thing. And so we, when it was on the sort of brink of um, extinction, um, we brought it back and in the nick of time. <laughs> I, well, I totally agree with that. How do, how do you feel like your book that you, that you wrote with your books that you wrote with Brian uh, Polson, uh, how do you feel they impacted the, our culinary industry and that it made everybody want to try to figure out how to make charcuterie again? I mean, they were a massive influence on me. I, I've made charcuterie for the last probably 15, 18 years now, and um, they were a great stepping stone for a, a young cook or a, 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 even a seasoned cook to try to figure out how to make something like that. How, how, do you feel like it's had a positive effect on the industry? or um, I, I would be disingenuous if, if I said it, I didn't think it did. I don't want to sound like I'm um, patting ourselves too much on the back, but I know for a fact um, it changed things. It changed a lot of kitchens just from how I'm treated when I go into a kitchen or a restaurant. And the chef has, you know, the chef has been changed by charcuterie. I'm just, I'm, I'm, and it's a great honor um, to have affected chefs that way. I also know it's um, been effective because it seems to be the most stolen cookbook in America, at least. <laughs> I can't tell you how many chefs I've talked to who said, yeah, I've had to buy four copies of that book because it keeps disappearing from the shelves. Um, I actually had a, uh, got a, somebody tweeted me a photograph um, of his, the passenger side of his car door, um, and it had been smashed in. And there was glass all over an empty seat and said, Roman, the only thing that was in this car was my copy of charcuterie. <laughs> True story. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it has encouraged a lot of people to try their hand at charcuterie. It demystified the, um, the craft and made it very accessible, which is what I've always tried to do. 
Um, and I think that's why I, I happen to be good at working with chefs and writing is because I have a way of making seemingly complex ideas um, accessible and easy to understand. You know, like Thomas Thomas and the French Laundry or the how an egg works or how a dry cured sausage works and how to why why an emulsification works and and because I love it so much, I think that you know my own excitement for the craft of cooking comes through and inspires those people reading the books to uh, to make it as well. Um, but I do want to I do want to say that you know it's uh, it's such a huge honor to be respected by chefs because I know how hard, how hard you guys work, um, and you know I'm I'm always so grateful when a chef says um, your bacon changed my life or you know this this book. This book changed my life, and I've gotten that a lot. And it's you know I couldn't be more honored, what you know, to have made an impact. Well, you definitely have made an impact for sure. For I mean, every chef I know is, has that book in their in their repertoire, and they read it all the time. Um, it's yeah. We I'll just say collectively from chefs out there, we thank you, <laughs> thank you and Brian. Um, I I bow to you guys. Thank you. Um, as you're um, watching the industry evolve, uh, what other kinds of alternative career paths should cooks uh, consider in this new normal environment that's, that's happening because of COVID? Oh, uh, you know, it's it's also new. It's also disorienting. It's also scary. Um, combined with world events, it, it's it's hard to say. It's a great question, but I don't. At this point, I don't know. Um, you got to watch and wait. And again, you got to be agile. You got to say, um, "How can we make money?" There's still going to people. People are still working. We're still going to have an economy. Uh, people are still going to want people to um, uh, prepare food for them. How can I do it? How can I do? How can I? How, how can I do this work that I love and make a living? Um, right now, I, I don't know the answer to that. Again, uh, flexible, imaginative. Um, as Brian likes to say, I've already said once. Um, you know. The best chefs um, persevere. What do I say? How do you say it? It used to be the mantra: adapt, persevere, and overcome. That's right. <laughs> just, just repeat that mantra. You know, you're a cook. Uh, you get things done. <laughs> that's, a, yeah, that's very true. That's incredibly true. Uh, here's another million dollar question for you. Like, uh, like many other chef owners, I'm very concerned that we're going to struggle to attract out of work, out of work cooks back into restaurant kitchens given the economic challenges of the standard business model. So how can this industry provide secure career paths for millennials and Gen Z cooks that offer the minimum, sorry, the living wage and work-life balance they want and expect? Uh, it's one of these questions that keeps on coming up over and over and over again in our industry within, within the, the chef owners that I talk to on the, on the weekly and daily basis. Uh, it's how to, you know, attract those young cooks back and how to give them what they need uh, or what they think they need? Um, that is a million-dollar question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, and certainly chefs who have run a lot of restaurants are, are better prepared than I am to, to answer that. Um, I, but I, I think it's to make the, the profession more professional, uh, to do what many, um, many other restaurants, like the French Laundry, uh, do is to put everybody on salary, uh, have uh, vacation pay. Um, you know, they started a scholarship fund so that uh, cooks could go to other countries to study with other chefs. Um, that kind of thinking, um, which puts, you know, the young cooks first, that shows them that they have a future here, uh, that there's room for growth. That's what you need to do. 
and it's an issue, and especially with cooks leaving the industry because they don't have work, um, it may be a hard job getting them back. I don't know. It's, yeah, I think it's going to be the hardest thing that we as an industry does is to try to attract those cooks back and then uh, give them what they need and uh, teach them what they need to be able to uh, you know, open their own restaurants one day uh, or to, to figure out what it is we all need or, 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 or how to make our industry. You, know. you have to teach them how to be better than you are. Um, that's, that should be your God. They have, if, you, if they aren't better, if they don't become better than you, um, by the end of their time with you, then you haven't done your job. That's how we make this industry go forward. Yes, yeah, agreed. Um, one of the things that you had talked about with Dan Barber was uh, what a chef does, adapt, preserve, and overcome, and that's a big part of it. Do you know the best way, or do you, is it something that you've done yourself to, to, to become more future-proof? Um, not really. Again, this is all so new. I mean, this, this just happened, what, um, three months ago, four months ago, a third of a year, but still, it's still so new. There's still so much, there's still so much that's unknown. Uh, I've been focusing on just getting more projects done. I've got another project with Brian that we sold uh, during the pandemic to a publisher, um, and working on another sort of, uh, a cookbook with a, a doctor friend of mine who is really into superfoods and, and teaching people how to use, uh, how to cook with superfoods that they might not otherwise cook with, which, you know, now in the time of COVID, it's more important than ever because people who get this virus, if they have underlying um, uh, health issues, they're more vulnerable to the virus. And those underlying issues are often diet related. They're they're vascular. They're you know uh, obesity and diabetes. Um, so we're realizing that um, e- eating well bolsters our immune system uh, and keeps us healthy, so that even if we do get the virus, uh, we can withstand it. So you know it's more important. I-, I hope generally that this pandemic encourages more people to eat better. That was kind of off track. No, well, that's actually it fits in perfectly. I mean, it's 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 teaching people to adapt, adapt their lifestyle to be able to persevere, persevere and overcome this virus. That's exactly true. Exactly true. It. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm glad I was able to make that point, but that's, you know, but um, from a practical side, I need the, I need some income. And so, and I make money by writing books and other things. And so I've just been trying to make sure I have enough work to get through this, this time. Um, and fingers crossed that by the end of the year, um, things are looking better. Well, that's what we're all hoping for. Um, well, that's that's a, I think that's a wrap. Thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciated your time today. Uh, you know, I, I just wanted to say one thing. We met once um, a long time ago uh, when I was working at the French Laundry. Really? Yeah, this is like 1999, I think. It was uh, just before the book came out, and you were you had come in for dinner, and uh, I was the butcher at the time, and I got to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was a million I, I, cooks in that kitchen I, I, at that time, so I know that it's. Uh, there, there were a lot. Um, it was always great to meet everybody, but I, I, yeah, I, I always feel bad when they say I met you at the French Laundry because I know I, I, there are just so many faces from from so many from twenty years there, uh, and sporadic visits, and I didn't really like work work with them a lot. But anyway, I'm glad we met, and I hope we meet again. Well, that was a real treat and inspirational, which we can all appreciate right now. My thanks again to Michael Ruhlman for his time and his insight. Because the future just keeps coming at us, we're going to keep prepping for better days with this podcast. And I also want to say 
for all those restaurateurs, all those chefs out there, please, please do whatever you can to keep on flattening that curve and making sure that we don't have to shut down this industry. A lot of people out there are pissing off Bonnie Henry, and we don't want that to happen. For all professional cooks, there's a lot more to talk about, and if there's anything that you think is important and isn't getting enough airtime, let us know. Drop us a line at podcast at chefstablesociety.com, and we'll put it on our menu. We'll be back before you know it. I'm Robert. Be safe. Be gamefully employed. And don't fuck around. <laughs> this podcast is presented by the Chef's Table Society of British Columbia and brought to you this week by Rationale Canada. 